John chapter 5, verses 24 to 30, page 1054, if you're using a pew Bible. And today, I want to uh, have us wrestle with what could be the most important, um, one of the biggest theological questions that people wrestle with. Uh, It's a theological question that most of us will ask at some point in our lives, perhaps multiple times, and perhaps you've already asked this question or wrestled with this question. And here's the question. Uh, Is it possible to have eternal life? And maybe you haven't exactly framed it that way. Maybe you've thought of one of the host of uh, other questions that are kind of wrapped up in that question, like uh, what happens after I die? Uh, Is there such a thing as a soul? And is there some kind of life after death? And um, if so, how do I know that? And if, if there is, how does one lay hold of that to make sure that you have that when you die? You know, is it possible to have eternal life? And so I just kind of use that as the umbrella question under which all of these questions fit. It's a big question. Perhaps as, as I say that, you know, that's the big question. Maybe you're thinking, ah, I'm not so sure. My big question is like, you know, what am I going to do for a job or... You know, what am I going to do with my teenager? Maybe you have other questions like that that are significant and pressing. Maybe, maybe, is there eternal life? Maybe that sounds a little bit theological, academic, abstract. And it might feel that way to you uh, until somebody that you know or you yourself get really sick. And then that becomes a very pressing question. Because you can't help it. Your mind goes to all the what-if scenarios. And, and what if the person doesn't get better? And then what does that mean? And sometimes we go there and we think about that. It seems like a very academic question until you're at a funeral. And it's somebody that you love. And people try to comfort you. You know, as a pastor, I conduct funerals. And you, you, you try to comfort people as best you can. And Sometimes people say things like, well, they're in a better place now. And in your honest moments, you, you wonder, okay, I, I think that's true. Is that true? What is this better place? How do I know that? And those questions become less ap- academic and more personal and even visceral. If there is such a thing as eternal life, then it should be a pressing question because that means this life that we're in now is so short in comparison. I mean, if, if that's even a possible concept, then... We ought to know what that eternal life is since this life is, you know, 10 years, 20 years, 70, maybe 90 years. It's like a blip compared to the concept of eternity, which boggles the mind and gives you a headache the more you try to get your head around eternity. And so what I'd like to do in in wrestling with that question, obviously we can't wrestle with everything that, that one could say about it here in the short time we have, but I'd at least like to look at what Jesus had to say about it. The the theme of eternal life is uh, perhaps one of uh, the signature themes of John's gospel. All of the different gospel writers talk about Jesus' life, but they all come from just a slightly different perspective with different emphases. And John is, is very unique, and this is one of his themes, what Jesus had to say about eternal life. So as we look at the text that's sort of the next text in our study, John chapter 5, verses 24 to 30, here's Jesus discoursing on his relationship to the Father, and now he's discoursing on 
eternal life. So I'm going to read this text, and as I read it, I just encourage you to kind of put your antenna up and listen and see what things you can hear Christ saying about the nature of eternal life. So let me read verses 24 to 30. Jesus said, I tell you the truth. Whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be condemned. He has crossed over from death to life. I tell you the truth, a time is coming and has now come when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in Himself, so He has granted the Son to have life in Himself. And He has given Him authority to judge because He is the Son of Man. Do not be amazed at this, for a time is coming when all who are in their graves will hear His voice and come out. Those who have done good will rise to live, and those who have done evil will rise to be condemned. By myself I can do nothing. I judge only as I hear, and my judgment is just, for I seek not to please myself, but Him who sent me. So as I look at this text, I, I think there are at least three kind of general observations we could make about the nature of eternal life. There's probably even more than we could say, but I'd like to at least make these three observations about what Jesus had to say about this huge question of, is it possible to have eternal life? And, the, and, and all three of them, viewed from a certain perspective, are a little bit surprising. They, they might be things that you wouldn't have thought or the world wouldn't have thought if you asked people on the street about this huge concept of eternal life. And here's the first observation about what Jesus says. The first thing is, is that eternal life is something that starts now. That's the first thing I noticed. That's surprising. Eternal life is now. Whereas we tend to think of it, if we do think of it, as something that starts then. You know, after we've breathed our last. But Jesus says, no, it's a very much a now kind of thing. Look at... Uh, in verses 24 and 25, you grammatical people, you'll dig this. Look at the verbs. Look at the tenses of the verbs. Verse 24, I tell you the truth, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me, Jesus says, has eternal life. Present tense. Not will have it, hope to have it, may have it, should have it, has it. So, The person who hears Christ's word and believes him and believes the Father and believes the message that Christ gives has it. It's in their possession presently. And then look at the next verb. He has crossed over from death to life. This is a different tense. It's even more intense. It's the perfect tense. Perfect tense, you know, present is present. The perfect is something that's past but has completed enduring significance into the present. So so the perfect tense is sort of done, sealed, and continues to have repercussions into the present. So, So Jesus is saying, not only do you have eternal life, but something has already happened where you've already crossed over. So by the time you've believed in Him, there's already something that's taken place, a crossing over. I love that. We'll talk more about that verb, crossing over. But, you know, it's being here and going someplace else and ending up over here. So that the person who's believing in Jesus, something has already happened in them. They've already crossed over. Something's been completed. It's now. It's not just in the future. Or verse 25. I tell you the truth, Jesus says, a time is coming and has now come when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those 
who hear will live. So not only do we have it, and not only are those who have it already crossed over, but Jesus says he's, he's calling, he's speaking, and people who hear him are coming to life. But notice the, the time frame. The time is coming and has now come. So he's not talking about the future resurrection. He's talking about some kind of coming to life right now that's taking place. So right now, the Son is speaking. Right now, people are coming to life by His power and crossing over from death to life. And as a result of that, they're believing in Him. And, and so you have this, this present life-giving work that's taking place of eternal life here and now. You have eternal life. It is a present reality. It, it's not just a future reality. Okay, so what does that mean? Because that's kind of a weird concept. We have eternal life now. Yeah, but didn't all those people who heard Jesus say that and all those people believing in Him, didn't they all die? Are they still lurking around like immortals, you know, dressed up like 21st century people, but they're really here among us? They died, right? It's like, so what does that mean that they had eternal life? What about Christians? What about people who believe the words of Jesus? And He says, you have eternal life, yet we die. So what does it mean to have eternal life Well, what we have to get our heads around is the Bible's way of talking about life and death is a little bit different than our way of talking about life and death. The the Bible's way of talking about is bigger, and it includes our way, but it's bigger than our way. You know, look at that phrase in verse 24. He who has, uh, hears my word, who believes in who sent me, has eternal life. He will not be condemned. He will cross over from death to life. So, so the crossing over from death to life now includes this, I, this idea of no longer being condemned. In other words, it's forgiveness. That we've been forgiven so that we won't be judged, we won't be condemned before God on, on that great day of judgment. You see, again, there's this different idea about life and death between the way we view it and the way the Scriptures use it. The, the way we tend to view life and death is, is more limited. It tends to just be focused on the physical. Right, So you're alive if your heart is beating and your cells are respirating and your brain is waving. And if your heart stops beating and your brain stops waving, that's when you're dead. Okay, So, so we're alive and then we're dead and we think about it in the physical sense of the word. Sometimes we even extend the idea of life and death to our emotional state. You know, somebody who goes on vacation sitting on the beach somewhere in some tropical place on the white sand with the waves lapping up. And they go, this is the life, you know. Oh, this is living, you know. They're talking about their emotional and, and their happiness. It's that kind of life. And sometimes people say, you know, my, the relationship is dead. It's dead, you know. So, so it's an emotional kind of deadness. So we tend to use the words life and death primarily physically, sometimes emotionally. And the biblical view of life and death certainly includes that. But really, the biblical view of life and death is centered not on our physical bodies, but on our relationship or lack of relationship to God Himself. So that from a biblical way of thinking, to be alive means to be with God. And to be dead is to be away from God. Because God is life. It's not just that God gives life or God has life. He is life. Look at verse 26. For as the Father has life, He has life in Himself. So He has granted the Son to have life in Himself. That's a juicy verse. We're going to get to that in a minute. 
but he has life. It's in him. So, so in a biblical way of thinking, to be with God, to be in fellowship with God, to be obedient to God, to know and to love and to worship him, it is to receive his blessing, which is life. You're in the sphere of life. You're in the kingdom of life. And uh, conversely, to reject God, to move away from him, to move into sin, to break his laws, to, to disbelieve in him, to go your own way, is to come underneath his judgment, and therefore that's the realm of death in, in every sense of the word, physical, spiritual, emotional, ultimately the the, the death of hell itself, the eternal death, the second death. So there's life and there's death. Life is with God and death is away from God. Maybe a way to think of it is to go back to the Garden of Eden story. I love going back to that passage. Uh, I feel like so many times it clarifies and crystallizes some of the basic rhythms that we find in the Bible. They all start there. That's, that's where the drumbeat starts, and we understand a lot of theological truths there in the Garden of Eden. So, you know, go back to that story. God makes Adam and Eve. He gives them life. He lets them live in the garden. And he says, here's the tree of life. Manja. <laughs> you know, live. You're with me. You're my, you're my subjects. I'm your king. You can know me. You can live. You have life in your, your relationship with each other. There's none of this weirdness between husband and wife. It's like what it's supposed to be. It's life in every sense of the word. But God wants to make clear that he's God and they're not. And so he puts that other tree there, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which, which I take to mean, you know, what's the tree of knowledge of good and evil? I take it to mean something like determining good and evil for yourself. In other words, it's the prerogative of God alone. And God says, look, let's just make clear I'm God, and you're my people, but I'm God, and so you don't touch this tree. You don't want to become like me. And of course, Adam and Eve were not content with the relationship with God and with the life they had, and they took that forbidden fruit, and, and as the story goes, they fell into sin. God told them, the day you eat of that fruit, you're going to surely die. And they ate of the fruit. They didn't die physically, but they did die <laughs> because they broke fellowship with God and they came under his judgment. And God kicked them out of Eden. Go. Where? Just not here. Go. He put that angel in front of it. You know the story with the flaming sword. I love that part. And Because uh, you can't come back in. You can't have the tree of life anymore. You don't have life. You don't have me. You're out of Eden. You're out there. It's the, it's the realm of death. And eventually they physically died, but they died the second that they broke fellowship with God because that's how death and life are defined as how, where you stand in relationship with God, reconciled or, or hostile toward. And so now this is the world we live in. We do not live in the Garden of Eden. We live outside of Eden. The world in which we live is broken. There is oppression. There is injustice. There is fanaticism. There is abuse and scandal and betrayal and lies and greed. I see it in the newspapers. I see it in the mirror. You know, it's, it's where we live. It's a sinful and broken world where death ultimately has the last word. Where all of our best plans seem to, you know, blow up in our faces like the Three Stooges. You know, they're always pushing in one drawer and the other drawer is punching them in the face and they're 
trying to fix the pipe, and the other pipe comes around, and we try to, we're like, I'm going to fix it this time. We're going to elect that guy, and he's going to fix it. Bonk. You know, it's like, ah. Oh, you know, it, it's just broken. The world's broken because sin is in us, and it's in the world, and this is where we live. And so, and so we, we, we are in death. That's important. Now, look back at John 5, 24. I tell you the truth, whoever hears my word and believes in who sent me has eternal life, he'll not be condemned. He has crossed over from death to life. In other words, we start in death. So physically, we're alive and then we die, but spiritually, we're dead and then hopefully we come to life. But we, it, it's not like we're going down the road, every human being going down the road, and we're neutral and then we hit a crossroads and we get to take a right and go to death or take a left and go to life or something like that. We're just in death. And if nothing changes, and if we just keep going the way we naturally want to go, that's where we stay. Again, verse 25. I tell you the truth, a time is coming and has now come when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God. That's the spiritual category into which Jesus puts humanity. We are the dead. You know, we're the walking dead. We're the undead. We're physically alive, but spiritually separated from God. And Jesus says, I've got to call you out of the grave. You've got to cross over from death to life. Remember, I was working out one time in the gym where I used to go, and there was this uh, big jacked-up dude who was lifting there, and uh, he was a really tough-looking guy. He had, on, he had so many tattoos. He had on you know what they call a shirt, a tattoo shirt, where it's, it's, you know, it covers your, your whole torso. So if you took off your shirt, it would look like you had a shirt on. And uh, on his knuckles... You know, I saw him weightlifting on his knuckles. On these four fingers, he had the word born, B-O-R-N. And on these four fingers, he had the word dead. That's a tough dude, born dead, you know. He's tempted to go over and be like, you know, I couldn't help but notice the writing on your hands. And <laughs> Interesting theological statement. You know, like, yeah, right. Uh, Man, some people, some people, they just tattoo it right in their bodies. Some people would never do that. Instead, what they do is make a ton of money and create a little empire for themselves so they can retire early and spend the last years on their little Eden on the golf course with 18 holes and then die without any knowledge of the Lord. That's just as much born dead. It's just as much pointless and fruitless to live a life of self-accomplishment and self-gratification, self-service, loving yourself and in your own little Eden that you're trying to build for yourself, which is a, a total hoax, but not knowing the Lord. That's just as much born dead. You might as well put it on your knuckles. At least that guy's kind of honest about it. Wow. Jesus says, that you can cross over from death to life, what he means is not that we instantly start living forever in a physical sense, but that in, in him we can go from this realm, we can cross over from this realm of death and judgment for our sins to being forgiven by God. And we can cross over into this other world where we're forgiven, where, where God is no longer against us, where our sins are put away. You see, if the root of the problem of death and life is where we stand with God, if what's causing death is ultimately not 
having something to do with ourselves. But what's causing death is ultimately rooted in our sins and our rebellion against God. Then what we need is to have our sins forgiven so that we know we're not condemned. That is the seed that begins new life that ultimately germinates in the fullness of life. That's why he says you will not be condemned. He's focusing on that. And when that happens, you cross over from death to life. I love that crossover language. It's the idea of going from one place to another. It's like you get on the airplane in Massachusetts in February, and there's a foot of frozen snow on the ground, and it's cold, and you haven't seen the sun, and who knows how long, and, and you've got all these coats on, and the, you, the plane takes off, and it lands, and you get off in Fort Lauderdale. You know, and you're suddenly overdressed. And you're like, I got to get out of these jeans. I got to get out of these tennis shoes. Where's my flip flops? Oh, look at the colors. Feel the air. It's so moist. Oh, there's sunshine. You know, you're in a different place. And that's how it is. Except it doesn't take a three hour flight, it's instantaneous. You're dead, then you're alive. That's what God does. Did you know that today, right now, you can cross from death to life. Like, right now. You, know, you don't even have to get out of your pew. Just, it happens. You go from death to life. It's mysterious, it's secret, it's invisible, but it's so real. From death to life that God can give. Christians, have you forgotten that you've crossed from death to life? I think we forget that sometimes as Christians. We, we forget that we are no longer under condemnation. We're no longer in the kingdom of death. We've come into the kingdom of God. You know, that should affect us. That should affect how we, we, we view the world and how we view life. You know, that should give us joy. Christians should have joy, even when they're going through gnarly circumstances. There should be an underlying joy because, hey, no matter what happens, I've gone from death to life already. There's a lot of Christians who are grumpy and cranky and bitter at everything. and You know, chicken little, the sky is falling and everything's bad and the glass is half empty and leaking badly. And, you know, this election, this economy, you know, ah, my neighbors and this problem. And, you know, it's like, okay, that's true, but you've gone from death to life. There should be a kind of like zip de doo dah you know? <laughs> I'm alive. There's joy. So that I can, you know, as Paul says, to be more serious, I can rejoice in all circumstances. Not that all circumstances are good or that I always feel emotionally up, but there should be a, a deep rejoicing that I've gone from death to life. Um, as Christians, we need to be people of grace and mercy. Because we've been forgiven so much. Sometimes we as Christians can be super critical, can be judgmental, can be self-righteous. We treat people uh, you know, very judgmentally. We're always finding the flaws in people, which is easy to do. If you want to find flaws in people, that's easy because everyone's a sinner. So it's like easy. But as Christians, it's not that we poo-poo sin or, or we, we, we sort of turn a blind eye to sin. We see it for what it is because we see it in ourselves. It's just that we've been forgiven. And so there's an attitude of grace and, and long-suffering and patience that we extend to each other. Even when we see each other at our worst, there's still that, but you know what? God is forgiven, and He can change you, and He can forgive. 
There's hope and there's grace. As Christians, there ought to be a certain freedom that we have because we're no longer under condemnation. I think sometimes we as Christians can be really driven, really type A, you know, got to have everything a certain way. And, and, and I got to get, you know, my relationship with God is this kind of like studying for the SAT test because I want to get the Christian life right so I get into a good place in heaven. I don't want to get into a bad place in heaven. And so we're, we're pushing ourselves and we're really driven. It's like, man, you're forgiven. You're free. You're no longer condemned. The judgment of the future has already come into the present, not guilty. It's the doctrine of justification. We're justified. We're declared just in God's sight. This is John's version of the doctrine of justification, crossing over from death to life. When people meet us as Christians, do they get a sense that we have life? That we really, because you have it. If you're a Christian, you have it. You don't have to go get it. It's yours. But it's a matter of embracing and living out that reality that should give us joy and peace and freedom and grace and all kinds of other things. Oh, Lord, help us to see who we are in you. Help us to see what we have in Jesus. If you have the Son, you have life. And so there is a presentness to this. That, that's my first observation. I'm, I spent the most time on this, and we'll go faster on the next two. But the first observation is just, it's now. It starts now. It's not complete now, but it starts now. We've already crossed over through faith in Christ. And so that leads me to the second major observation in this passage, which is that the way we get eternal life is through faith in Jesus. So observation one is that eternal life is something that starts now through having our sins forgiven. And observation number two is is that it comes through faith in Jesus. The way we lay hold of eternal life is by laying hold of Christ. As, as I just said in First John, it says, he who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. So to have Jesus is to have life. Again, look what he says, verse 24. I tell you the truth, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. And so it's justification by faith in Christ. We're not saved by our works. We're saved by faith in him. Verse 25, I tell you the truth, a time is coming and has now come when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God. Here again, the Son of God is calling people to new life in Him. So life is in Jesus. He's the one who gives it. Now, why is it in Jesus? Why is it focused on Him? It's like, what, what, why do we have to get so specific? Why do we have to name names? Why Jesus? What's this a Jesus obsession all about? Well, Jesus explains himself, verses 26 and 27. There's two reasons why we have to put our faith in Christ. Number one, it's because he is the one who has the life to give. Verse 26, for as the Father has life in himself, in himself, so he has granted the Son to have life in himself. So that's the first reason we've got to look to Jesus, because he's the one who's got the life. He's the one who has this life. I love that phrase, life in himself. That is a juicy idea to have life in yourself, to be self-sustaining, to be someone who, who possesses life. You know, in other words, if the whole universe went poof in an instant, God would still be alive. He doesn't need anything to sustain himself. I do not have life in myself. You do not have life in yourself. We had to have our life given to us by someone else. Our parents gave us life. I must continue to eat and drink and breathe <laughs> and have shelter in order to have life. 
And even with all that, my life, I still die because we're still in this sinful and broken world. And so, you know, I, I don't have life in myself. I'm like a reptile. I can't heat myself up. I need the sun to heat me up. God is the sun. He's self-generating life. And whether there's any reptiles around or not, he's just alive. And he made us, and so we're dependent upon him for life. So God has life in himself, and I love it. He's given life to the Son. And so Jesus says, I have life in myself, in himself. That's remarkable. So the same kind of self-sustaining divine life is in the Son as is in the Father. This is a great mystery. It's a great mystery. We talked about a great mystery last Sunday. We talked about the Trinity. We talked about how there's one God. There are not three gods. We don't believe that. There's one God. But within that one God is a family. God loves God. God delights in God. And God responds to God by delighting in God. God is both the subject and object of delight. And, and so you can go back and listen to that sermon if you want. But, but that's, you know, it's a mystery. The Trinity is amazing. But to think that within God there is a, a family and a fellowship of love within the one God. Here's another mystery, that the Father has self-sustaining life and he's given it to the Son. Now, how can you have life in yourself but also have to have it given to you? Because giving life implies you didn't have it, but to have life in yourself implies that you didn't need anyone to give it to you in the first place. So it's kind of weird. This is this theological idea that theologians have called uh, you know, the, the eternal begetting of the Son, that the Father begets the Son but he's been doing that for all eternity. In other words, there's no time in the past where there was ever the Father without the Son. The Father and Son have always been there, and the Father's always begotten the Son, but there wasn't a time when the Son was not begotten. Does that make sense? It's just a mystery. It's that mystery of the Trinity. But here's the point. The Son has life. Jesus has life to give. He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. Not only that, but he's the judge. Verse 27 He has given him authority to judge because he is the Son of Man. And so if you want life, if you want eternal life, if you want to escape condemnation, you need to go to Jesus because he has life. And he's the guy who does all of the innocent, guilty, sentencing, setting free, pardoning. He's the judge. And so if if eternal life is not being condemned, that means i got to go to him because he's the judge before whom we stand. Look at that little phrase there in verse 27. Because he is the Son of Man. That's a loaded statement to be the Son of Man. That actually is lifted right out of the Old Testament. And I'd like you to just read that with me real quick because I think it'll add a richness to this passage. So put a bookmark here in John 5 and turn back to Daniel, the prophet Daniel, chapter 7. It's on page 882 if you're using a pew Bible. Daniel chapter 7. I want to show you where this concept of the Son of Man comes from. This will be helpful because whenever you read the Gospels, Jesus is always calling himself the Son of Man. Interestingly, it's a title that Jesus uses for himself. It's not a title that anyone else gives him. It's always his own self-title. I'm the Son of Man. All right, what is he talking about? So if you understand the Son of Man concept, that's going to help you with a lot of the Gospels. But Daniel chapter 7, here's where the Son of Man comes. This is a crazy vision Daniel had a really wild prophecy in which he saw the judgment of God, where he saw all people standing before God as judge. Look at verse 9. As I looked, 
Thrones were set in place. The Ancient of Days, that's God, took His seat. His clothing was as white as snow. The hair of His head was white like wool. His throne was flaming with fire. Its wheels were all ablaze. A river of fire was flowing, coming from out before Him. Fire is this constant image of judgment in the Old Testament. Here's God in His holy throne judging. Thousands upon thousands attended Him. 10,000 times 10,000 stood before Him. The court was seated. The books were open. This is a courtroom trial scene. And then jump down to verse 13. In my vision at night, I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man. That's where that phrase comes from. Coming with the clouds of heaven, he approached the ancient of days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, Sovereign power. All peoples, nations, and men of every language worshipped Him. Do you get that? This is the Old Testament monotheistic saying that the, that the Son of Man will be worshipped along with the Ancient of Days. What is that talking about? What, where did that come from? His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. His kingdom is not one that will ever be destroyed. So how can there be this Son of Man who has all authority, all power, who judges, and who everyone worships someday? And the answer, according to Jesus, is me. That's Jesus' interpretation of the Son of Man from Daniel 7. Right here, I'm the Son of Man. But that is such a ridiculously huge claim. It's overwhelming. It's either like so bizarre that you have to laugh at it or it's so amazing you've got to get on your face and worship Him if He's really the Son of Man. And so come to Jesus. Eternal life begins now and the way you receive it is by receiving Jesus because He's the guy who has the life. He rose from the dead. And He's also the guy who is the Son of Man who will judge. And this is the really mind-blowing thing to think that this Jesus died for us. That the one who has life in himself died. How did that happen? That's another mystery. Chalk that one up to the mystery pile. The living one died. And the one who is the judge, who had never did anything wrong, allowed himself to be condemned so that we could be forgiven. What an amazing Savior. So our forgiveness was purchased through the sacrifice of Jesus. He is the sacrificial lamb. He is the Isaac whom Abraham was to sacrifice. All those sacrifices in the Old Testament law pointed forward to Jesus, and that's Him. The one who was the Son of Man in life became death and was condemned for us. What an awesome Savior. You can have life today. You can be set free today. You can be forgiven of your sins today because God has made the way. It's not something you have to figure out. It's not something you have to put together. It's not something you have to achieve. It is something that Christ has achieved, and that's why it can start now because it's not something you've got to work up toward. It's believing and receiving the gift of eternal life that Jesus gives. Which then leads, uh, just really quickly, just a few, few words on this, to the third observation. The first observation is that eternal life begins now. Second observation, that eternal life is gained through faith in Jesus. And then the third observation is that what we do with Jesus now 
sets the trajectory for our eternal future. So what we do with eternal life now, what we do with Christ, is what's going to put in place our future with Him. Look at verses 28 and 29. Do not be amazed at this, for a time is coming. He doesn't say end has now come. So now we're looking into the future. We're looking way down the timeline to the final judgment. When all who are in their graves will hear His voice and come out. So this is the final resurrection day. According to the Bible, this is how the human story ends with the the day of judgment, the final resurrection. All come out of their graves. You know, it's like when the court is in session, what does the judge say? All rise. All will rise and stand before the judge. It's the great getting up day. The graves will be emptied. And those who have done good will rise to live, and those who have done evil will rise to be condemned. And in the Gospel of John, doing good is defined as believing in Christ and all the fruit that comes out of that. And in the Gospel of John, doing evil is defined as rejecting Jesus and just keep doing what you want to do, what you have been doing. So again, even good and evil are defined around Jesus in John's Gospel. But notice, again, this is the point. What we do now affects where we come out then. Those same themes, life, and then in verse 29, rise to life. Condemned, rise to be condemned. So all of humanity will be sorted out. It will finally get sorted out. Is this world ever going to get sorted out? Yep. Yep. (laughs) Great, I'm so happy the world's going to be sorted out. Are you sure? Where are you going to be sorted? You know, it, that may be great or it may be really bad. And so sort it out now. This is the time for you to sort it out with God before he sorts you out. As that day is coming. On that day, there will be life and there will be condemnation. Oh, I can't think of anything more amazing than to, to live forever with God. This is, this is beyond even being able to preach about almost. It's so huge. And I can't think of anything more horrific than to live forever under condemnation, to live for under, ever under the wrath of God and the judgment of God and His curse. And so this is the time now to, to do peace with God through Jesus so that when that resurrection day comes, what happens now will be ratified then publicly. Right now it's taking place secretly. You don't know who's who. People who have eternal life aren't glowing. People who have eternal death don't have a dark cloud over their heads. We just look like people. We're doing our thing. But on that day, it'll be obvious. So make sure that you have Christ now. I had a a friend, a pastor friend, who put something on Facebook a couple months ago. Uh, It was just one of those kind of out there questions. He said, what's the biggest issue facing the world today? And, you know, pastor writes that. I'm like, oh, is this a trick question? What's he saying? So I'm like thinking about it. And people start answering, you know, global warming. You know, that the climate is changing. It's destroying the planet. Other people are saying it's globalization. Uh, you, you know, poor people are becoming poor. Rich people are becoming richer. And, you know, the, all these different answers. Uh, there's not enough love in the world. Uh, the world is, is too cruel. You know, just sometimes big answers, small answers. And, and I was like, ah, what, what am I going to say? And, and, you know, then it dawned on me as I was thinking about all these social issues facing the world, which are all terrible things. But I was like, you know what the biggest issue facing humanity is? That God's judgment is coming. That's the biggie. 
his judgment. And all the things we experience in this life are just like, you know, precursors. They're foreshadowings. The judgment day is coming. But I just want to tell you the good news, that there is life in God's Son. There's eternal life. There's forgiveness. There's even new life in this world. There's a joy and a freedom and a a, a peace and a grace that starts now. Have you tried to find God's peace and grace? Have you tried to find peace in general? But where have you looked? Where have you turned? What have you read? What religions have you tried? What rules have you tried to keep? Have you found those rules as guilt-inducing as I have? Where have you looked? Have you tried the new thing? Have you eaten it? Have you drunk it? Did it leave you empty? Jesus Christ is life. Lay hold of Him. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I humble myself before You and worship You as the Son of Man, the Son of God, one with the Father, holy, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. We worship You and we thank You, Jesus, that through Your death there is life. Thank You for the crossing over that takes place now. Lord, thank You. Lord, we thank You for the freedom and joy we have. We pray that uh, for those of us who have Jesus, who have eternal life, that You would help it to just shine through. Lord, it's there. It's just that we're so, our vision is so limited. Help us to see more and more of Your great love. And God, may we just reflect joy and freedom and grace to people around us. God, I pray for uh, anyone here who has not crossed over, that they would see the beauteous form of Jesus on the other side, reaching a hand out. And Lord, they'd cross over into His arms. That they would finally know forgiveness. They'd finally know healing in life. Lord, I pray for those who think they have crossed over but haven't, that You would help them see the truth so that they might not go to their graves on false pretenses. Lord, that's one of the greatest gifts you can give us, is to just show us the truth. Because we lie to ourselves. Lord, help us to see the truth. Help me to see the truth. And Lord Jesus, may you be lifted up. We're so grieved at, at the big worship problem here in this area. The big worship problem in this area, Jesus, is that so few people worship you. And so, Lord, we pray that you would solve this big worship problem and that you would reach out to people, Lord. May our church be a part of that. Lord, help us to tell others about you and to love people and to pray for people. And God, may we see more and more people finally coming to meet the Savior. And we ask all this in your name, Jesus, through your powerful name. Amen.